Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. Today, my guest host is, I'm so excited about this, a music therapist. Did I say that right, Alejandra? Okay, so Alejandra Ferrer is a music therapist and I in the NICU. And so I'm so excited about this because it it's something that I feel like is so fascinating. Whenever we get into the good nurse portion of the show, we're going to talk more about music therapy and what you do and a fundraiser that you're doing for the little babies in the NICU. It's so precious. So I can't wait to get to talk to you about all that. Thank you so much, Tina. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. I have to start this show out and I have to do this every now and then with a a little disclaimer. If you didn't see the warning sign or the trigger warning at the, in the description of the episode, it does contain disturbing material pertaining to violence against children and animals. So listener discretion is absolutely advised. I have done a few stories with these elements, um, but I'm always careful. I prepare myself ahead of time. I will tell you that I am a survivor of the foster care system of the 1970s and 80s and had to endure, unfortunately, many of the circumstances mentioned in this story. And I absolutely do not tell you that to get pity or sympathy. I do not want that 100%. That's the last thing I would want. I just want you to understand that I don't want to ignore these stories. And that's why, because they have to be told. We have to talk about it. We can't pretend that they don't happen or they'll, these things will never change. And so sorry to start out on such a downer, but I will say one of my coping mechanisms is laughter. And so that has gotten me in trouble a time or two in my life, in my life. I tend to, I think, maybe laugh at inappropriate times just because it's a, it is a coping mechanism for me, you know? So I, I don't, I don't like the, you know, I don't know, starting out so dark. But as I said, we are going, we're going to talk about this and we're going to get through it and we're going to learn from it. And so you and I talked about it a little bit before the show and yeah. I feel like we're going to have some really good discussion. Definitely. And and I can, I can certainly relate to the use of humor to cope having worked with people at end of life, people with, you know, stage four cancer disease, um, people in intensive care. Humor always came into the picture and helped make a really, really, really horrific, challenging, painful situation just a little bit lighter. I hope that people listening to this, for one thing, if if it's something that is triggering for you, and it, it, it please turn it off. I, I I would never you know want to send you down you know some road. I I I, I know what I can handle, and and so I I'm doing what I can handle, but I, I'm not everyone can, and so I. I definitely want you to turn it off and skip this episode if it's not for you. But I I just want you to know that I am doing this story and I do all these stories because we can learn from them. We can learn from the bad things that happen in this world. And one of the things that we learn is to not put our heads down and, and just not see, not see warning signs. Yeah. I think the worst that we can do is ignore or pretend that everything is okay. Yes, absolutely. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. 
Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. So having said that, I guess we can get started with this story. So this is the story of Susan Bluen. She was a registered nurse in Oxford, Massachusetts. She was married to a man by the name of Raymond, went by Ray. She went by Sue. She worked as a neonatal nurse and Raymond as an EMT. So they were both in healthcare, both medical. I've done some ENT stories on this show before as well. He eventually worked, though, um, at a Keebler cookie cookie factory for his, I guess, main job. And together, they also bred English bulldogs. So to outsiders, the Bluens appeared to be the perfect couple as they selflessly opened their home to countless youth within the foster care system. And I will tell you that this is so incredibly familiar to me because there are some wonderful people. I I should say that there are some absolutely amazing, wonderful people that are foster parents that have just really made the difference in the lives of so many different, so many children. And so I by no means want to take away from them, but you better believe because I was in several foster homes growing up. And I can just tell you right now, that I don't remember a positive one. I don't know. Maybe I had one and it was just not so traumatic that I don't remember it. But I can tell you that there was not one that I, that there was not some, some level of of abuse or neglect or, you know, something or just complete indifference, I guess. And so that's why I want to, to talk about this because many times there are foster parents who can come across like they are pillars of the community. They are just, I mean, they're so giving. Yeah. You know, they're, you know what I'm saying? Um, and the child is in such a vulnerable position and yes. has not had any stability, therefore may not know what is normal and what isn't mm-hmm. and what is right and what is wrong in terms of mm-hmm. how they are treated. And so they, they're quiet. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, as I would do, as I said, I developed a, as a coping mechanism laughter. And so many times I would put on, you know, I would laugh about things. I, you would probably, unless you're really intimately involved with me, there were some teachers, there were some people who I do think saw some red flags and there were some things even reported and nothing was ever done about them. And you as a child, you learn not to tell anyone because you know that nothing or you think, well, I've done, I've told someone and then nothing was done and it made it worse because now I have to live with these people. So yeah, I just want to say that oftentimes there are people who literally just look like the, the the saints, you know, because of what they're doing. They would even request the most difficult children to be placed in their care. So this goes all the way back to 1987. And so from 1987 to 2004, they took in more than 40 foster children and adopted six of them. And uh, some people will say, I've heard people say, well, if they adopted them, why would they, you know, why wouldn't they just keep stay in the, the foster care system? You cannot use logic when you are talking about people who behave like this. You just don't try to use your rational brain to figure out what they were thinking or what their motives were or, oh, they, they must have been had good intentions if they adopt. No. Yes. Please don't do that. When I read the line about they would ask for the most difficult children, that was a red flag mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. There there was like, something yeah. there that mm-hmm. said this this is there's there's something here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they worked hard to maintain their meticulous saintly image and conceal what unfortunately would be come to be known as a house of horrors. In August of 1997, a disabled teenager in the Bluens care had fallen ill a couple of days prior to falling ill. One of, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this name, but it's it's spelled T-H-Y. I would say Ty, but I don't know. Um, Ty Chan is, is how it 
seems like it would be pronounced. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. But one of Tai Chan's school teachers had transported her back to the Bluens residence after school and recalled Tai actively protesting that she did not want to return to the home. Chan's teachers at Oxford's Chafee Elementary School said school staff had previously filed multiple reports. Always frustrates me to no mm-hmm. end when I do these stories of suspected neglect and abuse involving other children in the Bluens' home. They were heartbroken to learn that nothing came out of their reports. So, Alejandra, I mean, what do you do as a teacher if you have a child in the situation who is telling you? I don't feel safe. I don't want to go back uh, in telling you of abuse. And you have done what you can to report it and nothing has been done. It just, it feels so, I can imagine how frustrating that would be. Well, you you feel so helpless and you feel so Mm -hmm. hopeless because you insist and you report over and over again. You don't give up, but you're not seeing the results that, that you need in order to keep this child safe. Yeah, I've had many many friends who work, whether it's as guardians or advocates or uh, school counselors, and they say unless there is evidence of broken bones, of actual Mm -hmm. physical injury, emotional neglect, sometimes even sexual assault is not taken seriously. It's not not heard. So it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Uh, It's infuriating to me when I think of a time when I showed some marks that were on my body to a classmate who then went and told the teacher. And I'd, I had no intention of telling the teacher. I was just showing them as when I was in fourth grade. And I do remember, you know, looking back on it, I, I just think, you know, why, why did I do that? Cause I wasn't trying to expose my foster parents. I wasn't, that wasn't the case. It was probably just trying to somehow, normalize it or just like share that with someone. But then that child saw that as something that they felt, I can't keep this to myself. I have to go tell. And then the teacher reported it and a social worker got involved and it was all this, they took pictures. I remember being absolutely humiliated, having to take my clothes off and then photographing me. And do you know that nothing came of that? And I was literally treated worse after that. And then it would be like, oh, do you want to go tell somebody now? Do you want to call, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm just telling you that, and, and these things are, I, I'm, I turned 50 this past year. And so it's, when I talk about these things, it's, let me just tell you that it's not something that I've talked about almost at all, other than in therapy for my entire, my entire life. And But I'm saying them now um, as a form of empowerment and as a way to help empower other people. I want other people to know that you do not have to be ashamed of what happened to you when you were a child or at any time that you were victimized by someone. You do not have to be ashamed to speak up and say, this happened to me. And it does not define you. It absolutely does not define me and who I am. I have, I'm so many things. I am so many wonderful things. And some not so wonderful things, but one thing I am not, I am not a victim. And so I I just, that is why I'm doing this story. And it's not an easy story to get through, obviously brings up a lot of, you know, not so good memories, but I want people that are listening to this to understand if you've been through something like this before, I want you to learn from this. If you have never been through something, if this is something you can't even imagine someone going through. I want you to learn from this. I think there's so much to learn. Yeah. You know, and and I think in, in addition to empowering the people who have gone through such horrific circumstances, it's also serving as a reminder to teachers and people in positions of power to be on mm-hmm. alert, to be attentive, and to not dismiss. You know, when you get that gut feeling, um, yes. when your intuition tells you that something is wrong, to truly take it seriously, to truly do something about it. Teachers are mandated reporters. Um, but then there's that circumstance of it, it made it really horrific for you. So your, mm-hmm. your teacher reported it, social work got involved, and then it became an even more traumatic experience for you. Right. So it's, it's such a, a balance, right? In some way for the teachers who want to be very active and, and report. 
but also want to maintain confidence for that child because they know that Mm -hmm. it could be worse at home. Yes, exactly. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. So according to reports, Chan was ill for at least two days before Raymond called for an ambulance. Chan had a fever of 106 degrees, and she was tended to by another foster child. Her name was Jessica French. She was tasked to care for Chan and another disabled child. This is kind of common, unfortunately, in the child the the household that I grew up in. There was a disabled child that was about eight years younger than me, and I almost became a mother figure to him. Not really, I wasn't necessarily told to, but I just naturally did that. I think that that probably is something that just happens naturally in these situations, that there's some people that they want to try to protect the younger um, children that are in these situations. And it sounds like this person was that person. She recalled Chan being bedridden and crying in pain for days before an ambulance was called. Chan was rushed rushed to UMass Medical Center where Susan worked as a nurse. And unfortunately, Chan tragically died from viral encephalitis days later. So if you think that the story ends there and that this is the worst that we are going to say, you've got another thing coming because it's hard for me to believe, but the state continued to place children into the Bluens' home despite the death of Chan and a series of complaints to the state about suspected child abuse. It's disgusting. I I don't have another, I I don't know what else to say. The complaints were reported as early as 1989. There were at least 11 reports alleging abuse from 2002 to 2004. Nine of them were supported, meaning the state found reasonable cause to believe a child suffered abuse or neglect by a caretaker. Yet it wasn't until October 2004 that the last child was removed from the home. The children placed in the Bluens' home were subjected to unfathomable horrors. The children were forced to wear diapers until they were 10 to 13 years old, despite being able to use the toilet. They were made to eat dog food and sometimes dog excrement and forced to sleep in dog kennels. The state didn't believe them. Their uh, attorney, attorney Erica Brody said they didn't look through the home to see if people were being kept in dog cages. They just didn't protect these children. Some of the children were made to walk around naked all day and night. The foster children were physically abused with and without weapons. One of the Bluens' previous fosters stated that he and, an, and other children were beaten with a dog leash on numerous occasions. The abuse, unfortunately, did not stop at the physical and psychological. The children were also sexually assaulted by the Bluens and Susan's sometime boyfriend, Philip Paquette. The Bluens and Paquette were charged with child abuse in 2003 and 2004. Raymond Bluen pleaded guilty and received two years probation. He is now a registered sex offender. Paquette and Susan Bluen received pretrial probation, and the cases were dismissed within a year. It's impossible to believe. That's the value that that they that the state placed on the lives of these children, mm-hmm. and the life of that one child that abs- actually died. But I mean, you, you, so many times, children who go through these horrific, um, traumatic childhoods, they end up finding coping mechanisms that are not really compatible with life. You know, they end up going down the the road of substance use disorder. Their mental health suffers because of it. I feel so fortunate. I have, you know, on the times when, when people find out, you know, just, just very, um, all all I have to do, there's just times people ask questions and I always hate those questions whenever we're in a a social setting, when people ask the questions like, where's your family from? And I just go, I get get this horrible knot comes in my stomach. I'm just thinking, I do not want to talk. Um, And so I usually wind up saying something really vague, like, you know, I have a sister that lives here, I grew up there, but I don't want to talk about it. And so I try really hard not to do that to other people, because it is not appropriate to digging into someone's past when you just met them. You don't know what in the world is going on under the surface. It's not appropriate. It's that assumption, right? We assume that everything must be like it is in our house or, you know, like it is. And perhaps the majority of the people that 
we know personally, and it is mm-hmm. anything, anything but that. Yes. So in 2019, after two of the victims came forward, the three were charged again. As of 2023, the Bluens are now facing one count of assault and battery on a child. Paquette was indicted on a charge of child rape. The charges are still pending. The former foster children are also suing 17 current and former state social workers, supervisors, and investigators, alleging they knew or should have known that children were in danger in the home. I I struggle with this because I know how overtaxed our and overburdened our foster care system is. Uh, they do not have enough social workers. I feel like, is it the social worker's fault if they're not able to spread themselves so thin that they can get around to, because there's some horror, horrible, horrible stories out there of cases that were reported and then a child died because, you know, the social worker was just not, just never went to the home or just get so used to hearing these complaints that they, they don't do their due diligence. And so I struggle with that. I don't, I feel like it's the, whose fault is it? The state needs to put more money into protecting these children. It's a dysfunctional system. And of course, we need someone to blame, right? And the people, the the, the easiest people who we can blame are those, those names that we had of, of the ones that were supposed to be in charge. But it's exactly what you said. That social worker had a caseload of 150 foster kids. There was no mm-hmm. way that they could do what they needed to do to ensure that everyone was safe. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the majority of cases did not turn out like this, but maybe many did. Yes. And, it, and you you know, as a social, I've, I've never done any kind of social work. I don't know what it's, I feel for them because I, I can imagine, you know, it's definitely an underappreciated uh, position for sure. But also, I have a very vivid memory um, of my childhood during that case that I told you about, where I re- I inadvertently really reported that abuse that had very visual, very visual signs all over the front and back, and it was so obvious that no one could deny. And and like I said, she took pictures, but I still remember sitting in a big room with the social worker and my foster parents and. Her saying, I remember her saying, you know, when we were growing up, we would spank, you know, and we would do this and that. And now, you know, really, you know, we have to be careful. And she took it as this was a spanking that just went a little too far, which I think just kind of justified the whole thing and probably in her own mind. So it's frustrating to me. Uh, That's a memory that just drives me crazy every time I think about it. Because as a child, I'm sitting there almost being gaslighted. Like, I was I just, I was just a spanking, right? Like, I just, I probably deserved it. I'm sure I did something bad. And so I just got disciplined. And they just maybe went a little too far. I mean, they used to do this all the time 50 years ago. And nobody even thought anything of it. Like, this is my 10-year-old brain going... Oh, why, you know, I shouldn't have even told anybody. I shouldn't have shown anyone. Perhaps you know? it's not that bad, you know? Yeah. And and you're made to believe that you're the problem. You're made to believe that, yes. you know, you're the one who's exaggerating or making up the story. Mm-hmm. So, of course, then you feel shame, then you feel guilt, and then you're scared to yeah. have to go home that afternoon and face the consequences of your parents. Oh, yeah. Called. Look what you've done. Now look what you're making us all have to go through, dragging us in here, making us look like child abusers. And so now it, it's, it's that whole, yeah, if you turn a child, you, their mind into basically accepting their fate and yeah. accepting that, oh, this is normal. I, uh, I shouldn't think that this isn't normal. This is normal. This is okay. It's acceptable. The state of Tennessee decided that this is okay and acceptable behavior. So therefore, no point in telling anyone. So we see that the foster system is understaffed. Now, do you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of the number of foster parents, is it also significantly below the, the actual number that, that the system needs? I think, I don't know for sure. I don't have the numbers. I didn't really do a lot of research into that, but I know that I've looked at that in the past. And I think that 
the the foster system probably is overtaxed and there aren't you know a lot of people that are willing to do this and there are so many people who step up and they're so giving and so charitable and just so loving and nurturing and they they bring these children into their homes and i i don't know what the statistics are i have no idea i literally only have my own experience from however long ago it was a long time ago uh, to go on. And then I know that these stories come out and it always dredges it all up for me, you know, so that's all I know. But I also know that I don't want to demonize an entire group of people because clearly that is not the case. That's, that would be like demonizing all nurses because one rogue nurse decides to do something horrible and evil to someone. Yeah, Of course, that's not the case. Absolutely not. But Unfortunately, these situations happen. What frustrates me the most, I think that the the blueins of this world are not going to go away. They are there. Yeah. They will be there. They will abuse children. They will neglect children. They will abuse animals. They will neglect animals. They will abuse other people. They will hurt people. Those people are there and they will become all different types of occupations. They will adopt children. They will foster children. They will become nurses. They will become doctors. So that that's horrible enough. But my frustration is with the states, the state, our governments are not doing anything to protect these children against these people. You know what I'm saying? Of course. Yes. The people can truly affect change. Yes, absolutely. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there, get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So lawyers for DCF and the state workers also said that the suit is invalid because she alleged offenses took place so long ago. There are statute of limitations against child abuse, even sexual assault, I did find out as when I became an adult, I found out that the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse does not start until you turn 18. When you turn 18 years old, and this is a teachable moment for anyone listening to this. If you happen to be 18 or, or older and you're looking back in your childhood and you are dealing with some things that happened to you in your childhood, the statute of limitations, that's the way it was in this state, did not start until you turn 18 for you. So whatever the statute of limitations is, say you have five years to report a sexual abuse or any kind of assault. I don't know, whatever the, the statute is, then it starts at, at 18. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd have until the age of 23 to make the report. Right. But in 2023 or in 2019, when these people came forward, so much, so much time had passed that that's, I'm sure the statute of limitations, you know, would have would have passed. That's so unfortunate to me. It, it, oh, it frustrates me so much because I know how difficult it is to process a lot of this stuff. And a lot of times it is one of the biggest coping mechanisms that we have is to just bury it way down in there, Mm -hmm. pretend like it never happened. So many times it takes years and years and years just for all the gaslighting to be unraveled and to just look back and go, wait a minute, that's not right. That was abuse. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it takes so long sometimes for us to process through and get the courage to be able to dig deep down and to get the courage to say, I want to do something about this. I want to speak up 
I want to tell my story. And if there's any possible way to make that person pay the consequences for their actions, I want to do that. If it could possibly prevent them from being able to do this to, to someone else. The statute of limitations, it just drives me crazy. What? Why? Yeah. Why does that even exist? I just hate it. Well, it's it's amazing. You mentioned that in, in the story, the last child was removed at the end of 2004 or, or at, in the year 2004. And then cases were dropped pretty much. You know, the, the consequences were minimal. The case mm-hmm. was no longer pursued. But then in 2019, here we go again. I, I'm actually, I feel very proud of these children coming together mm-hmm. after so many years of silence and trauma and saying, we're going to do something. We're going to do something. And I can imagine it being very therapeutic for uh, for them and a way for them to kind of process through all of it and just at least feel some sense of closure from it as though at least they know no matter what the outcome is at least they know they did everything that they could yeah and and while it is while we are proud of them and it is empowering and therapeutic and will hopefully lead to healing it will also be very painful because it's it's reliving and refacing and reawakening yes. all of these experiences yeah. yes Yes, and it's they are extremely brave mm-hmm. to to be willing to go through that. And I definitely don't envy them for the trauma that they're going to have to relive and experience by having to go through all of that. Because it's one thing to tell your story in a safe space. This is my podcast, and I talked to you before the podcast. So I feel you know this is the safest space I could possibly have. I know that there are people out there who will hear this and they have their opinions or whatever. I don't, I, I don't care about that. I can tell my story here and not, and not fear that a lawyer or a, a prosecutor, a police officer, whoever it is you're telling is going to look back at me like, are you really telling the truth? You're just, you know, are you making this up? That's the fear as a victim. You know, that's the fear that you're going to go forward, say what happened and that no one's going to believe you. They don't believe you, or it's your fault. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. it it right. You know, you had something to do with it. You were you were not a good child. Yeah, absolutely. And I just hope that if if nothing else comes out of this episode, that there will be people who will hear this who have suffered through and had to endure a childhood like this. Who maybe maybe they they haven't been able to process through all of the things. That, like I have. And I I hope that you maybe will hear this and know that 100% without a doubt, nothing that happened to you was your fault or defines who you are. Sometimes the trauma that we experience helps to, it helps create resiliency in us. It helps to, it helps us kind of, I don't know, just build coping mechanisms. And I won't say it doesn't help to form who we are, but it does not define us, absolutely does not define who you are. So I, I, I don't know. I just, um, hopefully this uh, has served to help someone listening to it. Maybe it helps someone who is a close f- relative, a friend, maybe a spouse, someone who, of someone else who is a victim. Because I can tell you that my husband has been so incredibly supportive. He knows everything just absolutely everything. And he has probably been like a savior to me, really, because he just makes me feel so normal and so just blah and average. And like, I sometimes I really just, it's not that I forget, but I just feel so blessed and so fortunate. And it's so far removed from all of that. And I'm so thankful for him. But I also know that he must struggle to understand, you know, sometimes maybe some of the reactions that I have to things or I don't know, maybe some behaviors or like I said, laughing at inappropriate times. It is so hard. I have been that person who will start laughing at a funeral and I just want to die. I'm just like, oh gosh, Tina, no, please don't do this. Yes. I cannot help it. Yes. It is terrible. I have sat I don't with know a colleague. Why. It's just <laughs> Yes. And we sit across from each other and 
We say it's inappropriate laughter. We recognize it is inappropriate laughter, but it happens in times of stress and in times of when things just, how could it get any worse? That's when we laugh. Mm -hmm. And we, we acknowledge the bizarreness, right, of the behavior, Mm -hmm. but also it is how we're coping in this moment. Yes. And we are not in any way minimizing no. the trauma that someone has suffered, of course, you know, and in no way trying to normalize the behavior of the the perpetrator, the person who, you know, is has committed the act. You know, so many times like on social media, there uh, a lot of the dark humor that goes on, the gallows humor that goes on in healthcare, you know, that's something that's always been there. People who are nurses, doctors, anyone working in that kind of high stress environment where you see things that are just horrible and you deal with, you know, death and you deal with, with, deal with trauma, you deal with pain and suffering. A lot of times they, they will develop those coping mechanisms and use that dark humor to kind of just galvanize themselves and get through it and just be strong enough to take care of those people who need them. Yeah. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who want to put that on social media. I don't think that that is appropriate. No part of me thinks that I, it is not appropriate to share that with the world. The world does not need to know how we are coping with that. They don't, it, they do not understand it. They don't get it. And it just makes us look callous and it makes us look it just makes us look like we don't care yeah. about the trauma, about the suffering, about the pain. And that is far from the truth. Yeah, in most I cases. cope this way as a way of emotionally removing myself from this very difficult situation so that I can remain objective, so that I can remain effective. And it may look from the outside like I'm a really, really horrible person, but it's it's actually for the opposite reasons, right, that I choose to cope in this way. But like you say, you put that on social media, people don't understand. People only yeah. see what's what's right in front of them, and they don't dig any deeper. And the way they interpret yeah. that is, is, yeah, it can be really dangerous. Yes, I think it is dangerous. And I, I know people justify it, because they say, well, there, if you don't like it, don't follow this page. And <laughs> that I just think it's irresponsible. I'm just going to say that that's my opinion. I have a right to my opinion. So anyway, So in March of 2023, the $40 million lawsuit originally filed in 2019 was scheduled to go before a mediator in attempts to reach a settlement. A judge had rejected the state's motion to dismiss the case. DCF uh, lawyers have appealed the judge's decision. Police would later remove, and this is, gosh, I have people that will email me sometimes and say, please, you know, I know you do trigger warnings for other things. Please tell me if there's something involving animals. And I can, I can totally empathize with that too. Cause, oh my gosh, I can't, I am the person that will literally scoop up a spider, a spider on a napkin or something and take it outside. Cause I just cannot stand the thought of, of killing anything that's living. But having said that, this is part of the story. Police would later remove 28 dogs from the Blue Inns residence. The dogs were mostly old English bulldogs and Labrador retrievers. The officers at the home noticed an overwhelming smell of dog feces and urine and heard several dogs barking. Officers reported finding crates for roughly 20 dogs upstairs at the home, but only one dog was registered for the property and the couple did not have a kennel license. The animals are currently being cared for. And in 2019, Susan's nursing license as a registered nurse and an LPN, she was, I guess she probably became an LPN and then went back and got her RN. Thank goodness both of those were suspended. The Board of Nursing said it is moving to prevent her from ever renewing her license, but is awaiting the outcome of the pending criminal charges. So I have I have a question, Tina. Did she continue to practice as a nurse for all of the years between when the abuse was occurring, following the removal of the last child through 2019 when her license was revoked? That I'm not sure of. You know, it's said that she was working at the hospital that time Uh when that child was brought. Yes. And it's hard for me to imagine that she would have been fired or would have lost her license, which she didn't, you know, back then, when she didn't even get any jail time. No. So she didn't lose it until four years ago. You'd almost have to assume. And this happened 20 years ago. mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Exactly. And these are very vulnerable, oh my goodness, the most vulnerable patients we could possibly imagine in the hospital. What a bizarre situation, right? To be a NICU nurse, but to be an abuser in your home and mm. to practice, to, to go into a caregiving profession, it, it just, none mm -hmm. of it makes sense. None of right. it makes sense. Exactly. No. No, it doesn't. But so often it is impossible to make sense of the actions of people who will do things like this. It's just, it, you know, if you are, if you, if you don't have that kind of mindset, if you, if you're not the kind of person who could do something like this, I don't think that you have the ability to put yourself in that person's place. And so we cannot rationalize it. We cannot imagine what that person was thinking. It's just, nothing is going to make sense. None of this makes sense to any of us that no. someone would do something like this. Someone would treat another human being like this or animal. But unfortunately, week in and week out on this podcast, I unfortunately have to tell story after story of people who do horrible things. And occasionally these come along and I have to spread them out. I'm not, you know, it would be a long time before I do another story like this, but we're going to we're going to tackle it. We're going to deal with it and we just did and we got through that story. Hopefully we learned something. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, Y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. But now I am so thankful to have gotten to the, the good nurse section of this podcast. So neonatal intensive care unit or the NICU, as we call it, at the Children's Hospital at TriStar, TriStar Centennial provides precious babies with extra medical support. And Alejandra Ferrer is a board certified music therapist, and she's hoping to raise funds, which you already do an amazing job. I not I noticed on your account, but she is raising funds for personalized MP3 players to help calm and soothe each of the babies. That's so precious. Yes. Thank you. Um, we are trying really, really hard to raise money. We have, we have reached what was our initial goal which was to buy equipment for all 60 NICU beds. So now every NICU bed can be equipped with an MP3 player and a set of speakers. And there are chargers so that multiple devices can be charged at the same time. Ideally, we would love if we could send the MP3 player and the speaker home with the baby after they're discharged. Oh, so, gosh. Right? Because we've created this music that is soothing, that is comforting, that is developmentally appropriate, um, that they have been listening to. So therefore, you know, now they're familiar with it. And perhaps they have a, a great preference for it. 
it would be ideal if we could gift mm -hmm. the MP3 player with a speaker. I don't, we're certainly not there yet in terms of funding, but if it does continue to grow the fundraiser, this could be something that is, is possible in the, in the near future. I think that's, I think that's just wonderful. So explain to our listeners, what is music therapy exactly? What, what is it that you do? Give us a little um, explanation of what it is and what it does for patients. Yeah. So music therapy is part of the expressive arts therapies. So the umbrella is music, art, dance movement, and drama therapy. We use our art or our music as the therapeutic medium, as the catalyst in our therapy. So for example, I may use um, a receptive music listening experience. I may provide a patient with very soothing, calming, relaxing music during a painful medical, medical procedure to help cope, right? To um, maintain physiological and behavioral stability. I may analyze the lyrics of a song with a teenager who is having difficulty coping with hospitalization or coping with a new diagnosis. I may do songwriting with a person who is not readily expressing themselves and is just bottling up everything that they are going through. So we use different music-based interventions like music listening, singing, songwriting, lyric analysis, music and relaxation, music and movement to help a patient achieve non-musical goals. And so it can be reduction of pain, it can be procedural support and distraction, it can be self-expression, coping, relaxation, anxiety reduction. So um, it is music therapy, it is provided by a board certified music therapist. And this is someone who went to school and received academic and clinical training to to be able to effectively practice in this in this area. Wow. I had, I mean, I knew that this was a, a a job or an occupation. I learned that a few years ago because I think I did I did a story similar uh, to this or about a, a music therapist. I think a long, long time ago. I, I just feel like it's vaguely there somewhere. And I remember learning about it and thinking, this is amazing. I can't, I, uh, you know what? I can't believe. I can't believe. Uh, TriStar Centennial. Kudos to you for recognizing that this is something that is helpful and healing for people. I This is something that I would think a hospital, you know, maybe that is trying to save every penny they possibly can would maybe not think would, would be beneficial. I, I, I'm amazed. I'm just amazed that they would see the benefit and, and be willing to fund this. It's wonderful. Well, you know, the the music therapist at at TriStar, they serve the entire TriStar facility. So they serve the pavilion, they serve the women and children's hospital, they serve neurorehabilitation. We are there actually as I'm a professor at Belmont University, a, a music therapy professor. And we started a clinical practicum or a, a, a clinical rotation in the NICU at TriStar in the fall of last year. So we have been going there regularly every Monday realizing that there is a need for appropriate music listening devices and music for these for these babies and how, this is how this this idea came to be but like you just said there are over 150 music therapists throughout the state of Tennessee and they are working in medical hospitals psychiatric facilities assisted living memory care hospice and palliative care schools many of them have their own private practices so yes clinical facilities realize the the benefits that wow. music therapy, art therapy, dance movement can bring to their patients. I love it. I, I It makes me think of some videos that I've seen of people with Alzheimer's who have, then they will play music from their, you know, when they, they were kind of the era from when they were younger. And then it just sort of like a little light bulb goes off. You can just see something that, oh, it's just amazing. Um, the power of music. Uh, to heal and soothe. Yes. Have you seen um, Tina Alive Inside, the documentary? No. Um, there's a very famous video of um, an African-American gentleman. He's an older gentleman. He's sitting in a chair and a nurse brings him music that is meaningful to him from his youth. And you just see this cognitive awakening, like you say, this light bulb that turns on. And it mm. is the most beautiful, moving, powerful moment you can imagine. Alive Inside is a oh. great documentary. Oh, wow. Yes. It's not about music therapy, but it's about music intrinsically and how, how powerful it is. Wow. 
That's just amazing. So what can people do if they want to support you and your efforts to continue to raise money for this project? Um, well, there um, there is a link. You know, I, I did this through Angel Link, and it is um, music for NICU babies. We can, I can certainly send you this link, and, and I'm not sure if you can attach it somewhere, but it should not be too difficult to find if you go to the Angel Link page and type in, you know, music for Nikki babies. And there's a, a way to donate through through this fundraising site. Okay, we will put this link in the description. So like, if you look down in the description, when you whatever app you use to listen to the podcast, we always have like, you know, the description of what the show is going to be. And then past that, we usually have some links, we'll put the, the link to where you can go to support this down in there. It'll, it'll be angelink.com. But like she said, if you just go to angelink.com and, and type in music therapy, uh, NICU, you'll, you're going to be able to find it. Yes. So thank you. Well, thank you so, so, so much for coming on this episode. I'm sorry it was so dark, such dark material. I think you were perfect for it. You were just so great. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for sharing such a, a di- difficult story with, with your listeners and helping people process, cope, um, begin to view this in a, in a different light. I have, I have no doubt that it will make a difference for, for others. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And of course, you know, you guys, if you want to reach out to me, if any of you want to reach out, you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can find me on my website, goodnursebadnurse.com. I'm on social media and love to hear from you. You know, I always love hearing from you guys. And of course, I have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. (laughs) 